Welcome to Redeemer. And uh, if you're a first-time guest, I want to welcome you on behalf of our church and our session. Thank you for working, worshiping with us today. We pray that the Lord would uh, meet you and encourage you uh, through his words. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to open up God's word together. Our Father and our God, we bow now and ask that we would be able to continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. That the words that we are about to read, they are truth. It's, it's true. And we cannot rightly worship you without having our hearts and our minds changed by truth. That worship is not just what we come and give to you. That the promise that you make to us is that you show up right here every Sunday where your people are gathered. And you meet us and you receive our worship in Christ but you also instruct our hearts from your word that that is also a part, a vital part of worship. And so I pray now that we would listen, that you would speak. What a beautiful privilege that you speak the gospel to us and that you do it through broken men such as myself. That you use the foolishness of preaching to confound the wise, to save the weak, and so I pray that this would be an act of worship, both for me and for our listeners, for the glory of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. It's Easter, so we're going to talk about the resurrection. And uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, so we're going to take a break from Nehemiah and go back to Nehemiah next week. But if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to look at 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 22. And I have a pew Bible, so if you want a pew Bible... Uh, it's on page 961. And if you don't have a Bible, you have your Bible on your phone, I ask that you pull it out. Uh, the Word of God itself is living and active. That the words that I say you might forget, but these words right here are eternal. They're alive. They're living and they're breathing. And so you don't just need me. You need this Word right here. So I invite you to open it up. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the other apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how then can some of you say that there is no such thing as a resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he did indeed raise Christ, 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in this life we only have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. So uh, I'm turning 39 this summer, and um, it's making me sort of think about my 30s and what I've learned in my 30s, and uh, sort of comparing that to me as a 20-year-old man. I married my wife in my 20s and moved to Jackson and, and left my career with uh, General Electric, and at that point, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed engineer who had met the Lord and just really thought that uh, the world was kind and that I could actually make a difference and, and worried about if my life would matter. And I, my, my, the way that I view the world was just really optimistic. But in my 30s, I feel like I have a more sobering, just honest perspective. And it started back in uh, 2011, 2012, when I tore my ACL. And that was the first sign that, all right, dudes, you're not a young man anymore, right? And you cannot play basketball with college students at Jackson State anymore. And that's what happened, right? I was playing basketball with some students from Jackson State on a missions trip, went up for a layup, and came down on a guy's uh, foot, and it popped right there. And I knew it, like it swole up like a, a golf, I mean, like a, a grapefruit right then, instant, right? But little did I know that that would be the start of just a downward cycle. The guys who, the guy leg, the, the foot that I landed on, he died, right? 23 years old, found him dead in Atlanta. Not long after that, another student who was, you know, 23, who had married and had a child, she got cancer. And she also died. And not long after that, another student took his life. He was about to be redeployed to Iraq and was married with a young child, not even 25, and had to do that funeral. And, and sprinkled within all of this, my wife and I lost four children through miscarriage. And it was no funeral. It's like a quick procedure, and the grief just stays there. And I could go on and on just about what we've walked through in our 30s. And I've lived long enough now to know that death is strong and it is mighty. It is a tyrant. And no matter what you believe about it, it will find you one day. I used to have this naive view that you, everyone will be guaranteed to live a full life when you bury three or four students, it's not promised. And it's just been really sobering. And, and there's a quote by a woman by the name, name of Ann Lamott, and she writes that in 100 years, all new people 
And think about what she's saying. She's saying right now, if you were to take a tally of every single person on this earth right now, you fast forward 100, maybe 110 years, guess what? All new people. All new people. And that's the weight of death. That's the sting of death. That in this room right now, that there will come a day when one by one by one, every single person in this room, our bodies will go into the ground. It doesn't matter if you believe it. It doesn't matter if you agree with it. It doesn't matter. It's going to happen. Death has a 100% batting average. It will not lose. And it can make us afraid. So much so that there's this passage that I've been thinking through, and it's about John the Baptist. And you remember when John the Baptist was in prison? And you remember when he's about to be beheaded? And do you remember what he did? He sent his disciples moments before or days before he's beheaded. And he says, Jesus, you got to tell me, are you the real deal? Are you the real deal? Because I'm about to be killed. And what strikes me odd is how Jesus responds to him. He says, you go and tell John that the lame see, that the deaf they hear. In other words, the way Jesus answers John the Baptist's question is not to tell John the Baptist how to deal with death. The way that Jesus answers John the Baptist is to point John the Baptist back to himself. I am the one. Tell him what you hear. Tell him what you see. What is Jesus doing? He's setting the table that you can't, you and I cannot talk about death rightly unless we're going to be talking about Jesus. In other words, Jesus has to speak into it that before our death and our resurrection is about anything about us, it's first and foremost about him. Now, what I want to do is look at this text under that cloud, that, that which you and I feel when I talk about in 100 years, all new people. That right there, what you feel or should feel. The case that I want to make to you is that the, the answer to that is found in the gospel and the gospel alone. And so what I want to do is look at this text because there was this popular teaching that was kind of going around in the Corinthian church. It was a bunch of stuff, but this one particularly was that there is no such thing as someone being raised from the dead. I mean, Paul says it over and over and over again. How can some of you say that there is no such thing as being raised from the dead? That is a person or a people trying to reconcile what they see versus what Paul is saying. In other words, when I lay someone to rest, they don't get up. That when I lay someone to rest, I will never hear their voice on this side of eternity. Death sure does look final. It sure does look strong. It sure does look powerful. And all of a sudden, Paul's coming in and saying, no, there is something called the resurrection from the dead. And they're saying, well, wait a minute. I haven't seen it. Isn't that the tension, right? That we hear these things about Jesus, but in our practical experience, we struggle. 
So I, I think what Paul does here is masterful. That, that the first, one of the first things that he does is he actually spends time proving the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's, that might sound contrary to uh, our faith, but I, I want to make the case to you that, that we have a faith as Christianity that's rooted in evidence. It's rooted in fact. As a matter of fact, if you look in your Bibles, look at verse 20, and, and this is beautiful. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So notice right there in verse 20, Paul says, this is a fact. And what he does is he lays out evidence for it. Now, what I want us to do is just pay attention to the, the proof or the amount of time he spends proving that Christ was raised from the dead. All right, so that's kind of point one. Now, this, this, might, not, this might seem out of place for 1 Corinthians, but it's not. Like, why in the world would Paul, because he's using legal language in this text. So the first place you can, you can see it is in verse 15. If there is no resurrection, then we are found to be what? Misrepresenting God. That word literally means false witnesses. So that's the first, that's the first thing. He says, if there is no resurrection, then we are false witnesses. The second thing, look at what it says, because we testify. That's the word number two. This is testifying. We're testifying in a court of law, so to speak, that the resurrection really did happen. And so this is courtroom language. I'm going to show it to you. But think about, go back to 1 Corinthians 6. Now, why would Paul come back up with courtroom language? Because what was happening in 1 Corinthians 6? That they were having disagreements in the church. And rather than deal with the disagreements in the church, what did they do? They took their disagreements outside of the church and took it to the court of law. And Paul says, how dare you? How dare you who are spiritual try to take the matters that happen inside the church out to a pagan judge, a pagan court of law? You see what's happening? And so here's what he's doing in this verse, chapter 15. He says, okay, you want to go to court? I'm going to take you to court. And the first thing he does is he pulls out legal documents. He says, your honor, this is piece of evidence number one, attesting to the resurrection of Christ. The first thing he says is, Your Honor, it's all happened in accordance with our scriptures. So notice what he says. I'm going to throw it in here right now. Look at what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so what you see right here is that for Paul, the bodily, physical resurrection and death of Christ has already been talked about in the Bible. Now, in Paul's day, the, the New Testament was not written. And so when he makes his appeal to the scriptures, you know what he's appealing to? He's appealing to the entire Old Testament. He says, Your Honor, I have an Old Testament, every single book, and I lay this right before you as evidence that this Jesus who is the Christ, he has been prophesied and promised from God from the beginning of the world that he is coming. He says, Your Honor, where do you want me to turn? You want me to turn to Genesis chapter 3? When God himself says, I will send a son born of a woman who will crush the head of, a, of the serpent. Your Honor, do you want me to turn to Numbers where Moses raises up this snake in the wilderness and the snakes are biting God's people and, 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 and God says, unless you look away from yourself, 
to that serpent that Moses is raising, you will die. And then Jesus comes along and says, as Moses raised the serpent, so the Son of Man will be raised. Your Honor, I will take you to the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days. And then Jesus Christ comes along and says, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, the Son of Man will be in the earth. Your Honor, I take you to Psalm 16, where the Lord himself says, I will not allow my Holy One to see corruption. And he was not talking about David. Paul says, how do you want it? What book you want me to turn to? He says, all of the Old Testament is about this. And I take this, Your Honor, as my first piece of evidence that there is the resurrection from the dead because our royal scriptures have told us this from the beginning of time. He says, okay, well, if you don't want to listen, okay, I get it. These cats, they all dead, right? There are no living witnesses, right, who wrote this. They're all dead, right? He says, okay, I got some living witnesses for you. He says, let me bring them. Now, notice this, this phrase that's all in this section, and it, it's, it hinges around this word appearing. So notice right there. Look at it in verse, uh, in verse 5. And Jesus, who was raised, appeared to Cephas, and then the 12. Look at verse 6. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Look at it, verse 7. And then he appeared to James, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. You see what Paul is doing? He is bringing living witnesses before them. He says, okay, first person, go get, go get Cephas. The same Cephas in earlier in the book that you're telling me I follow Cephas and I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Jesus. He says, look, you may not agree who you're following, but you go get Peter and we're going to tell you the same thing. We saw the risen Savior. He says, okay, you don't, you don't want to listen to Peter. Go get the other 12. He went and he visited the other 12, not Judas. Judas hung himself. Matthias replaced Judas in Acts chapter 1. And this happened, we think, right when Jesus was about to be ascended. So when Paul says he visited the 12, he probably has Matthias and the other 11 at stake. He says, okay, he also visited all the apostles. And now, and he, he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, your honor. If anybody knows who Jesus is, this guy would. They grew up in the same house. Go get him. He's leading the church in Jerusalem right now. And then... Look at what he says. This one blows my mind, right? And your honor, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And most of them are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. You hear what he's saying? I can bring you 500 people right here, right now, and they will all say that they saw the risen Savior. Now, why the number 500? I did some research into the Greek legal culture. And there's a book, it's called Trying Nero, if you want to go check it out. And it's written by a woman by the name of Deborah Hamill. And this is a true story. It's about a, a Corinthian prostitute who found herself in a serious relationship with an Athenian man by the name of Stephanus. And unfortunately, that was illegal to marry a Corinthian and an Athenian to marry. And so this guy named Stephanus, had, he filed a legal suit 
uh, against uh, this guy, Apollodorus, filed a legal suit against Stephanus, the man who married the Corinthian woman, and he took him to court. And here's what she writes in her book. He says, in the Athenian law, minor cases would have a jury size of 201 to 401 people. But in significant, higher profile cases, you have to have 501 jurors. There's another journal article written by a professor at Yale. He digs into all of this. If you were in Corinth and you heard Paul say, I have 500 witnesses, you know what's going through their mind? This is not petty court. This is high court. And Paul has all of the jurors. There's enough evidence, enough people who witness the living Christ to come in right here, right now, and take us to court, and they would win. You see what he's doing? They have never seen a man get out of the tomb, and that is pressing in on their reality, causing them to grieve without hope, causing them to bow down to what's being taught in, the day, in, the, in their day. And what Paul says, no, there is the resurrection from the dead. I have evidence. It has happened. It's the risen Christ. And if you don't trust the books, if you don't trust Peter, if you don't trust James, if you don't trust the other apostles, if you don't trust the 500 witnesses, he says, you know what? Trust me. I saw him. Do you know how I used to live my life? He said, I murdered Christians. I persecuted the church. Go ask anyone about my reputation. And he says, as one untimely born, that phrase right there, it, it means miscarriage or it means someone who did not have full term in the womb. And here's what Paul is saying. The other apostles, they got three years of Christ. I was pushed out of the womb fast. I got one encounter with him. And so I worked hard. I worked harder than all. And yet it was not I, but it was the grace of God working in me. And that's why everywhere Paul went, went they doubted his apostleship. You are inferior. You did not live for three years with Jesus. And what Paul is saying, I saw the same Jesus they saw. And you're my living proof. You see what he's saying? The first thing he does about the resurrection of Jesus is build a case that it really did happen. He really did walk the earth. He really was crucified. And look how you might, you will never find his bones anywhere. He's not there. He's at the right hand of God. Now, the second thing Paul does, he says, okay, if you want to play with there is no such thing as a resurrection, he says, let me show you what life is like if there is no resurrection. And so the, the second thing he does is he says, okay, let me give you a picture, a sobering picture of life without the resurrection of Christ. And so then he moves into these if-then statements. If there is no resurrection from the dead, look at verse 13, then not even Christ has been raised. Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. 
You, hear, you, see what he, you see what he's doing? He says, okay, I'm telling you as a historical fact, Jesus raised and we have witnesses. But if you want to play with God and you want to say that's not real, he says, let me tell you what you're choosing. What you are choosing to say if you deny the bodily resurrection of Christ, that my preaching is in vain. I've been shipwrecked, flogged, imprisoned. I'm tent making in Corinth so I don't have to charge money for you. Your faith is in vain. It's futile. He says, if there is no resurrection, you're calling God a liar because God himself has testified that he was the one who raised Christ from the dead. That's not what you want over you, right? And he says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then all who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're gone. They're done with. They're over. Look at verse 19. And if in Christ we have hope only for this life, we of all people are most to be pitied. You hear what he's saying? If you deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus, your life will be pitiful. It will be what we read in, in Ecclesiastes, where the author says, I set my heart to pleasure, to having concubines. I set my heart to work. And I found out that I worked hard all my life and everything I earned, it was left to children who misused it and spent it. I set myself to pleasure and that feels good in the moment, but then it does not ultimately satisfy my heart. I set my heart to wisdom and to knowledge, but I found out that the more I know, the, more, the sadder I am. You know, I had uh, a few years ago, it was stress and anxiety, and I was drinking way too much caffeine and not getting enough sleep. And so I had this little heart, heart thing going on where I had to wear like a, a halter monitor. I think that's what they call it. And I had to wear it for a couple days because I had this irregular kind of beat going on. And so then finally at the end of it, I had to go to the doctor and get on a treadmill and run and just run. And then it was, you know, I'm thinking like, man, that's kind of cool. I'm going to be hooked up to a machine. And then I'm going to go in there, and they, they had an image of my heart just kind of right there kind of beating. And all of a sudden, I'm like, ma'am, is that my heart? And I'm like, what is that? And what is that? And what is that? And here I am going in there like, this is cool. Like, I'm about to learn something about what's going on right here. Do you know that the more I learned about the human heart and how much it pumps and valves opening and closing, I got sad. <laughs> See why I got sad? Because I'm like, that's it. That little thing right there is keeping me alive. And all it takes is like one valve to not open right or to get clogged up, right? You know, like I'm thinking like, man, more knowledge, more knowledge. I'm like, I don't want to see it. You know, I just, I don't want to see it. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. Set your heart to knowledge, set your heart to money, set your heart to pleasure, set your heart to whatever it will be. There is a God-sized hole in your heart that only God can fill. He says, if this man has not been raised from the dead, 
your life is meaningless. You're going to be here today and you're going to die and your boss is going to hire somebody else tomorrow to take your job. Your wife or your son or your, or your husband, they might get remarried. Your kids will blow through all of your money and not come to your tomb to visit you. I'm just telling you, that's what Paul is saying. If this Jesus hadn't raised from the dead, you have wasted one hour and 24 minutes sitting here this morning. That's the world that I don't want a part of. I want to matter. Here's what Paul is saying. If you play Jenga, then you know the object of the game. I see some of my kids, they lit up when I said Jenga. I see you. So the object of Jenga is you get these blocks and you stack them up, right? You stack them up and you try to get this tall uh, building. And the goal of the game is everybody take a turn and pull out a block. Now, if you've played Jenga, then you know that some blocks are inconsequential. You pull this block, it doesn't matter. But once you get down to the nitty gritty, you start to hit those load bearing blocks that when you pull it, it kind of tugs on it and you can't quite like you can't quite get it out. And then the whole thing starts to kind of move and shake. And then you push it back in there and try to go to something else. But you know that, hey, I'm not pulling that. And you're hoping that the person you're playing with forgot which block it was so that you can win so that they can pull it and it all falls down. Here's what Paul is saying. If you deny the bodily resurrection of Christ, if you move that block, guess what? Everything collapses. Your life is nothing. It comes tumbling down and nothing you do here matters and you don't matter. This is not an inconsequential piece of the puzzle. Paul says this historical bodily resurrection of Jesus holds it all together. And here's what Paul does. He affirms the bodily physical resurrection of Jesus. He gives evidence. He tries to show them what happens to your life if you remove that fact. And then he says this. The gospel alone is precious. That in them wrestling with death and grief and sadness, his answer isn't just you're raised, right? You'll be raised. He takes them and forces them to wrestle with the gospel. So notice what it says. We know that 1 Corinthians 15, it is all about resurrection. It is all about being raised. But notice what Paul says in verse 3. Look at verse 1 first. Now, I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Paul knows that he's about to talk about the resurrection. And yet, when he deals with the subject of the resurrection, he will not have that conversation without the gospel. And so notice what he says. You remember the gospel I preach. And look at what it says in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. So right there, whatever Paul is about to say, he said, it is the most important piece of information you will ever hear. 
It's more important than hearing that we got a clean scan from the doctor. It's more important than hearing that we got our income tax refund that came in through the email telling us the account has been hit with the, you know, with the refund, right? I look for that email. I need that email. I'm not going to get it this year, but I look for it. <laughs> it's more important than hearing your girlfriend say that she will spend the rest of your life. Now, why is what Paul's saying more important than anything we would consider good news? Because Paul knows you might get a clean scan today, but eventually you will die. He knows you might get $2,000, $3,000, $5,000 back on your income tax, but guess what? It's not enough money to buy you eternal life. He knows that you might get to spend your life with someone you love and you will grow old with them, but guess what? One of you will die first and one of you will hurt the other and be left to grieve. You see what Paul is saying? Think of all the good news that we can get, and Paul says, my news is better. Because I'm addressing what you really, 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 really need. He says, I delivered to you that which was of most importance. There's no no other news better than this good news that Paul is saying. Well, what is the good news? The good news, Paul says, is first, that Christ died. The one who rose from the dead went on a cross and went into the ground. The joy that we feel on today comes out of suffering and sadness on a good Friday. And why did this real Jesus, who was the real son of God, who Isaiah says there was no deceit in his mouth. He was tempted in every way like us and yet without sin. How in the world and why would this why would this God man be met with death at the end of his life? When scripture clearly says the wages of sin is death. Well, why did the sinless one be rewarded with death, death on a cross. You know what the Bible, Paul says? It was not because of his sins. Look at what it says. He died for our sins. And by the way, our scriptures attest to that. He was buried. This was not, he didn't lose consciousness. Like his heart stopped beating, his brain stopped functioning, his brain stem stopped transmitting, that his kidney shut down, that there was a real bodily, physical death on the cross. He consumed all of the wrath of God, so much so that there was darkness across the face of the land, that no man would see how the father would crush his own son for our sins. He crushed him unto death. And they took him off of the cross and they put him in a tomb. And he stayed there. Day one, day two, day three. And he was raised in power. How can Paul say that this simple and good news of Christ coming, Christ dying for our sins, Christ being buried, and Christ being raised. How can he say that that is the most important piece of information on the planet? 
because it deals with the questions beneath the questions. Whenever I hear that someone has died, I always say how or when or where. I never ask why. The gospel tells us why we die. No matter your race, no matter your income, no matter your political party, no matter where you grew up, no matter who you vote for, no matter what you drive or where you live, death will haunt you down because we're all sinners. And the gospel addresses our sin. It tells us the why. And so I know that there are popular other movements happening, the conscious movement. But here's the thing. I don't want to talk about a religion or a philosophy if you're not telling me why am I dying and why is the world the shape that it's in? It's not going deep enough. Christianity tells you the why. And Christianity tells you alone that the one that we will stand before has left the throne and has come down to pay the debt for us. That is unparalleled. That the judge would leave the bench and be sentenced for what we owe. Now you might be thinking, how is this related to resurrection and the hope that I have for it and for my children, the hope that I have that God will make all things new? And here's the turn. The gospel is not finished with you simply when Jesus takes away your sin. The gospel will be finished with you when Jesus brings you home. And that's the beautiful piece of the gospel that we want to affirm he died. We want to affirm that he went into the ground. We want to affirm that he was raised. We want to affirm that he died for our sins. But here's the missing piece. The missing piece is that he was also raised for you. That Paul says that the, the resurrection of Christ, that the physical body of resurrection, you know what it has in tow? What it's bringing with it is my own resurrection. That if I'm in Christ, he doesn't just pay for my sins. That is great and that is good. But he exalts me to a status as, a, as of a son. That Paul says that, that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of our resurrection. And so if we believe that by faith we have been united with Christ in his crucifixion, that we have been buried with Christ in his burial, then we will be united with Christ in his resurrection. And so if you move the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus, you know what Paul is saying? You're touching your own hope for the bodily resurrection. That's why he spends so much time giving evidence. That's why he spends so much time defending it. 
He says, you know what? Your life is hidden with Jesus. You are with him. He is gone before you, taking your sin. He is gone into the grave, and you will go there too. And he is coming out, and you will come out with him. That's good news. That means my life matters. That means we can look at death and be afraid, but we can look at death and be victorious because we have a savior who has triumphed over it and we're in him. There's a book, if you want to read more about union in Christ, it's written uh, by a guy by the name of Duncan Wellborn. I'd encourage you to pick it up. Um, it's a really, really good book on union with Christ. And that's the phrase that we see twice in this text. I mean, you see it right there. I want to make sure to get the right word. Oh, man, I just slipped me. There it is in verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You see what, what Paul is doing? He is attach, attaching the Christian's identity inside of the identity of Jesus. He makes this statement. He says that, hey, when I was in, in uh, high school, I was the smallest guy on the field. But we had a special play when we needed to get a touchdown and we were close to the goal line. That we would bring in a big 300-pound linebacker. Well, not linebacker. I guess he would be a lineman, not linebacker. We would bring in a 300-pound lineman, and we would li they would line me up behind the lineman. And I would just get the ball and stay right behind him. And this big boy is making way, clearing it out. He's absorbing all of the blows and I get in. I want to tell you, Christ, we're behind him. He's gone before us and made the way. We don't so much have to focus on death but focus on our union with him. And so if you're not a Christian, this sounds too good to be true, it is. Well, it's not. But how, how, how might this be mine? There's a phrase in here that he uses over and over. It is not by your works. It is simply by faith, believing in these facts about this Jesus and God's spirit coming upon you and giving that to you. And so if you want to talk about it, I would love to speak with you right out back. There will be two people up front praying with us at the end of the service, praying for you if you want to pray. Don't be afraid. We'd love to see you come to know the Savior that is our hope and trust. Let's pray. Lord, we commit this time to you now and pray that you would encourage your people. Help us to see that we have a very intelligible, very thoughtful, very uh, evidence-oriented faith that you uh, created uh, order and structure and uh, our desire to want to seek and to know things. That I, I praise you that Paul brings them to charge and he shows us really good evidence of the resurrection of Christ. 
I pray that for those of us who are in wheelchairs and who are aging and who are dealing with our bodies that are failing, I pray that you will give us all hope that one day we shall walk and we shall run and we shall not grieve or cry or be sad or suffer from cancer. That one day you will make all things new. And I pray that you will give us that. For Christ's sake, amen.